This is the sound of me tapping on my card to board a bus to Jake Knoll's apartment somewhere in inner northwestern Chicago. Jake Knoll is an actor, comedy writer and comedian. They created and starred in the award-winning series Just Call Me Ripley on OTV and as a stand-up they have opened for performers including Matt Braunger, Beth Stelling, Justin Willman and Cameron Esposito. But that's only the half of it. In 2019, they were named Best Stand-Up by the Chicago Reader and they've performed all over the city and the country, including as an understudy for Second City's ETC stage on the improv team Baby Wine at Annoyance Theatre, the Laugh Factory Chicago, NBC Breakout Fest and SF Sketch Fest. I wanted to talk to Jake about writing comedy not just because so many people had told me how much they enjoyed Jake's stand-up, but because I wanted to know what it took to write, produce and film a comedic web series. Jake is disarmingly sincere and we had a really refreshing conversation about writing, performing and watching queer comedy. The key takeaway from our conversation, for me, was to really work out what vulnerability is and embed that vulnerability in comedy. It was autumn last year when I walked to Jake's place, but just like this year, there were remnants of Halloween on people's front lawns, there were lawnmowers and leaf blowers and people's dogs barking, and the footpath was covered in turned leaves. Hey, hey, good. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you too. Thanks for coming all the way up. Oh my gosh, I am always down for an adventure, so... <laughs> This is like a classic Chicago fuck-off beautiful home. Yeah. Oh, damn it. Oh, my God, thank you. I googled typical Chicago apartment, and the one that best resembled the style that Jake lives in is the Chicago Greystone. The interior featured a big floorboarded open-plan living area, a huge bay window, a bike, some second-hand furniture, and lots of plants. It had a bigness and an openness and a characterful millennialness so typical of so many Chicago homes filled with improvisers. Postscripturally, I do recognise that not all millennials are improvisers and not all improvisers are millennials. But before we sat down at Jake's dining table, they poured me a glass of water and I met Ripley. Just call me Ripley's namesake. Your cat's here. Ripley, are you coming out? Hey, Ripley. Are you watching? Yeah, you're going to show off? Hello. That was a cool stretch, mate. Come and have a smell of my bag. Oh, wow. Don't worry, I won't make any direct eye contact with you. (laughs) I know how this goes. (laughs) Yes, this is amazing. She's like, somebody knows cats. Can you tell me about the first time that you remember either being funny or thinking you were funny? or making people laugh and enjoying it? I actually can, um, or one of the first times. Uh, So I was a super shy kid, and that was kind of my identity, was a shy kid. And um, I used to go to this after-school place where if you had working parents, they would send you to this place where people would take care of you um, in the elementary school. And uh, I had, like, a stuffed lion with me, I don't remember what I said, but we were sitting in a circle and I think I interrupted the teacher and said something very loudly and stupidly as the lion and everybody laughed. And I was like, 
oh, wow, I'm funny. I was like, this is cool. Also, like, wow, learning disrespect for authority, <laughs> real, real strong. Automatically threw a line as well. Like, yeah, yeah, through just like through a character. Tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How did that translate as you grew up? Um, I think I learned to turn on and off this funny part of me. So because I am like kind of reserved and, and shy, like it allowed me to have my quiet time and then I would do theater in school and that would be my like loud time. Um, so I could turn it on and off and it developed as like not a split personality, but two different sides of me for sure. Do you feel comfortable with that division now? Yeah, I think for a while I was like, this is what crazy is, right? Where you have two different, but like everybody has different parts. If you were the same person around everybody, you would be a psychopath. This might sound like a really odd question, um, and I apologize if it's ignorant. Um, But I'm wondering whether that played into making reasons or excuses subconsciously for a period of time about like, being non-binary or being queer? Interesting. I think for me, being closeted, as it were, was so unconscious. Like it was such a, I wasn't consciously like, I know this secret about myself and I'm hiding it. Um, It was just like, I purposely numbed myself in a lot of ways. Um, So I think that there's like the kind of overarching part of me that I wasn't wasn't allowing to exist was the connected part and that connection can come out in when I'm on or when I'm myself but I just wasn't connecting do you remember the first uh queer joke or thing that you did in improv on stage that felt comfortable or good or risky and what came from that for you I, so there's a couple of experiences that I think as I was coming out, I was really, um, struggling to find my voice, um, in kind of exploring. And actually this was one that definitely did not work is it was before I had ever had sex with a woman or like had really been like, uh, lived my queerness. I tried to make a joke about queer sex on stage and it went over so badly. It was like in an improv scene (laughs) and it was so uncomfortable. It was like, it was like if a straight person said a queer slur on stage, essentially. Like, I didn't say a slur, but it felt like that level of, like, discomfort. <laughs> it was, like, offensive, and I don't exactly remember what it was. So there was that experience where I was like, oh, my God, it doesn't matter if I'm queer or not. I cannot. Like, I have to be truthful, you know? Um, and then, uh, but then when I started talking about uh, being non-binary on stage, um, that was a really freeing moment and it was really emotional. I like cried at an open mic one time, which is the most embarrassing thing you can do. Um, but after that, it was like such a a powerful feeling that I was like, oh, this is cool. That moment of crying at an open mic is like triply vulnerable because the actual emotional performance not that it's performance but you're on a stage so it's like part of the performance (laughs) is I imagine a very intense thing to also have added to being on stage doing comedy making jokes coming to terms with and like beginning to be really comfortable and acknowledge who you are um 
I guess what I kind of want to know in relation to that is what it feels like to be brave for you. Like, I think there's like people attach brave narratives to different versions of queerness and ability and race. But I think there is also like a pragmatic, practical side to not like performing braveness, but actually just having to confront sometimes when something is scary and hard, that the only way you're going to get through it is to do particular things and be really practical about it. Um, So with that definition of bravery in mind, what does that look like for you? Um, I think vulnerability is the bravest thing. Like it, um, doing the thing that you're afraid of and going into it, not even like with that kind of, I think that there's this very, um, culturally masculine narrative of what bravery is, which is sort of strong arming your way through something, but that doesn't allow you to be affected by it. I think the bravest thing you can do is let stuff affect you and, uh, I mean, that's what audiences pay to see because they don't want to do it themselves. So they pay to see you do it. Oh, my God. That's why I like watching things. (laughs) Yeah, we're weirdos. We love watching people be vulnerable. That's why Meryl Streep gets paid so much. (laughs) I love it because like Meryl Streep is often also like paid for being vulnerable, like, and being Meryl Streep, like there's something so Meryl about it. So you're watching Meryl Streep be vulnerable, you know? Yeah, you're like, this is like my favorite vulnerable person. We're such weirdos. Humans are so weird. Who is your favorite vulnerable person? Oh, wow. Um, You know, right now, I think it's um, Glenn Close on Instagram. Well, tell me more. I love following older celebrities on Instagram because they do not know what they're doing. <laughs> just like she's like showing moments of her life where it's like no one needs to see that Glenn like she like had a picture of her where she stuck blueberries on her eyes <laughs> and it was like what are you doing like um or just like her unashamedly just like laughing and it's just a video of her just laughing <laughs> and there's it's so wonderful because you're like I would never see this celebrity in that moment also there's no reason she should have filmed this and put it online um but yeah that is brilliant. I think you just managed to, I mean, I not that Glenn Close like needs an advertisement for more people to follow <laughs> Instagram, but like if people need another reason to follow Glenn Close on Instagram. Please. I mean, yeah, it's like, oh, it's gold. And Anthony Hopkins as well. He's, he's fantastic. Really? Yeah. He just loves to play piano. He'll occasionally put on a Halloween mask for no reason. <laughs> Also, I have to say, if you ever wanted to do a Glenn Close parody account, you have like half the character there already. Just like you could pull off aesthetically a Glenn Close like incredibly well. Thank you. I uh, I, I had a custodian in high school who used to call me Glenn Close. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm. I have also seen you do like a really bizarro comedy act on the internets where you were like parodying doing impressions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those were my friend Steve Gadlin's show. Uh, I think it was called Comedy All-Stars or something. Yes. And uh, yeah, he had like he would not let you say it was like purposely bad, but he wanted you to do something that you were pretty much guaranteed not to be good at. And so he's such a bizarre person. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, I was like, he's like, can you do impressions? I was like, no, he's like, great. (laughs) Get up there and do that. It creates a kind of like awkwardness and unsureness about whether it's parody or real, even though it's obviously parody. Mm -hmm. 
that is entirely reliant on that vulnerability you're talking about, which is like being vulnerable or being bad at doing something and letting yourself be terrible. Yeah, like letting letting people watch you be bad at something or get frustrated. That's like clowning, but like, um, yeah, just letting people watch you be vulnerable is is comedy. Like I have to explain my identity to people a lot because uh, this is like new for a lot of people, right? Like non-binary people have been around forever in all different cultures, but we're just like figuring it out again, right? And it's difficult. I use they, them pronouns, um, which uh, feels better to me. He never worked. She never worked. They, them feels good. But in order to tell people, um, I have to tell them in a way where they won't get mad at me because people get mad at me. And it's like, I don't know why either. <laughs> I'm cute as hell. You don't get mad at me. <laughs> How can you get mad at Macaulay Culkin, you know? across the room and you're like, I don't know the gender of that person, but they sure are eating all the hummus. <laughs> You'd be correct. I love a good dip. You know, so we already use, but it's hard. Like, I don't have, like, a big queer family that can tell me how to do this stuff. Like, my family is gay, but they don't know it. But, like... <laughs> So I have to go online to learn queer information, and the only people giving queer advice, on, and I don't read, I go to YouTube. <laughs> the only people giving queer advice on YouTube are 13-year-olds named Aiden with blue hair. And let me tell you, Aiden gives horrible advice. Where did you come from originally? Uh, I So I was actually born in Illinois. And then when I was three, I moved, my family moved to Connecticut. So I grew up out there and then came back to Chicago in uh, 2007. And what brought you back? Comedy. When did you decide to make the move? Um, I was doing classes in New York for about a year and a half. And so I was commuting like three hours each way. So I was like, this is, I can't keep doing this. I was like 18 at the time, so I was like, I can, my body can take whatever. But um, New York was very expensive, and also at that time didn't have as much improv, so I uh, decided to come to Chicago. When you decided to make the move, how old were you, and what did you have to plan for? I think I was 19 when I decided to move, and I had gotten a, a like random mailer from um second city that said we have a comedy program now and i was like this is a sign and i was also very high um, and drunk and was like this is a great idea uh i applied to columbia college here in chicago um and i did not i got my ged out of high school which means i didn't graduate officially basically so columbia is a school that has open admissions pretty much so it was one of the few colleges that i could get into and i was like 
that's another sign. So I just came out here. How did you feel when you arrived? I honestly was pissed that it wasn't New York. I was like, Chicago is not like it didn't feel big enough to me because I was so used to New York and Chicago is like considerably smaller and people are friendly, which was upsetting to me because <laughs> in New York, like for the first time someone made eye contact with me on the street in Chicago, like a stranger, I ducked because I was like, this is bad news. Oh my goodness. I have never thought of that largely because I think where I come from, it's really common to like say hello to people on the street. Yeah. And so I've always enjoyed Chicago for that reason. Oh my God. Amazing. But New York, I really struggle. I am one of those people that gets pulled in by anyone with a story (laughs) that everybody else knows how to avoid. Because that's why in New York, if someone makes eye contact with you, they're no good at something. They want something. How, How do you, like, when do you learn that and how do you navigate it? What do you do when you go back to New York? Uh, oh man. I mean, I'm trying to think now, now New York tires me out. Like I get very tired there very quick because it's so fast and there's so much going on. Um, I think I just, it takes like a, takes like a day to reset and be like, no eye contact, head down, straightforward, just go. Okay. That's good to know. That's reassuring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you came to Chicago How long after being here did you start to make your own stuff and get involved with like the Koch Brothers uh, Mystery Show podcast and really begin to get involved in the comedy community? I got involved at Improv Olympic IO pretty early on. I started taking classes there while I was still in college and I didn't really, I don't don't feel like I really started um, in earnest making my own stuff until years into it because I was not out and I was spending a lot of energy on uh, trying to date men to cover up that I was gay. So I would make stuff, but it didn't have my full heart in it and it didn't have my full like sort of point of view in it. Um, What would making stuff that doesn't have your full point of view in it look and feel like? So in terms of improv, I definitely spent a lot of time trying to find the logic of what I was doing and trying to follow rules and trying to find like what's the mathematics of this Um, as opposed to it's like such a um, art for I mean art it just like comes from the heart and so I was really disconnected from it in that way so I was very for me it showed up as I was very shy I was on the back line Um, I didn't really make uh, exciting choices I would just kind of make safe choices And once you began to recognize yourself and become yourself, what changed? For one thing, I let myself play male characters a lot more. Um, When I was in improv classes, I would get in trouble for playing men. And they would say, like, play closer to yourself, don't play men, which, like, I'm uh, non-binary. So it actually was closer to myself to play men, um, but I was told not to. So that was one big change. Also, just letting myself play goofier characters and um, uh, allowing myself to do stand-up and do stuff on my own that I thought was kind of reserved for men. I've seen you do some stand-up on the internet, and you had a really great bit about breaking your dick fingers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which I found really funny. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I'm a complete idiot. Like, I was dating somebody a while ago, and I was on my way over to her house, and I didn't have enough money to get on the train because I do this. And so I got to the... Okay, don't laugh too hard. 
So I get to the turnstile, and I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll jump over the turnstile, forgetting that I'm five foot three. So instead, what I did is I face planted over the turnstile, and I ended up breaking my dick fingers. There's one lesbian over here. For the rest of you, it's these two fingers. If you still don't know, ask your neighbor. These are the fingers I have sex with women with. And I broke them. Have you guys ever tried to fuck with your non-dominant dick? And I noticed that it, part of the joke that you told, it incorporated the audience realizing what you meant, which I found to be a very straight thing to have to accommodate for, uh, which is part of doing improv to a diverse non-queer audience, if we want to call diversity that, which we do (laughs) Diverse is not queer now, yeah. (laughs) They would love it. They would love that. I mean, it'd help for straight pride, I guess. It would really help, yeah, yeah. They're diverse now. Yeah. As per us. Um, (laughs) I mean, they can quote us now. (laughs) Yeah, do you hear that? You're officially diverse, straight guys. (laughs) Then they have to hate themselves. (laughs) Yeah. That's true, and cover it up. Yeah, exactly. And they can't play men on stage. They have obviously. to play women. I mean, yeah, they can't. Yeah, they have to like play close to themselves, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is like oppressed and minoritized. Yeah. They should really just be there to support the women on stage. They actually, they're like. <laughs> I mean, truly, truly, you owe us about fifty years of that at least. <laughs> <laughs> we just want you on the back line. We want you looking pretty in the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, big tangent, but. <laughs> What I'm wondering about is how, as you have begun to create comedy that reflects what you find funny and your lived experience, how you've begun to accommodate that in a straight world. Uh, That's a good question. For that dick fingers joke, that one, it works in a lot of queer rooms, but it is definitely designed for straight people. Um, And uh, it's, it's frustrating because I see... Um, straight guys get to talk about kind of whatever and they don't have to explain anything because the society is already set up to understand where they're coming from because every movie is about them. Every book is about them. You know, they don't have to do any backstory, any work on that. So a lot of sets that you get are five to 10 minutes. So I have to take up some of that five to 10 minutes just explaining my point of view. And that's frustrating because sometimes I just want to jump in and be like, hey, I put on my testosterone gel this morning and like and then people are like, what? (laughs) You have to spend like 20 minutes with that, you know, I could just imagine a lot of cis men being like, am I supposed to put on gel? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. If I could, if I uh, if I can trick cis men into taking too much testosterone. (laughs) Amazing. Chef's kiss. Yeah. The thing that I actually found funniest about that joke was that, can you imagine if a guy told a joke about breaking his dick? Like, everybody would just think that was the funniest thing. Oh, yeah. That would be, like, an amazing story to them. Yeah. 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 Like, absolute gold. Like, how yeah. often is a <laughs> this sounds sick, but, like, how often is a comedian blessed with breaking their dick and yeah. being able to tell that story? <laughs> Comedians are a sick bunch. Yeah. But you have this, like, turnstile story that means that you 
you you broke a very like precious sacred thing for the sexually active queers <laughs> among us yeah um and you just told it so well when you were writing that joke and thinking about it how did you refine telling it um let me think that's actually one of my older jokes um I think it usually when jokes work they're ones that just kind of like are things that I think aren't going to be any good when I write them and then the first time I say them they get a reaction and I'm like well fuck that's not what I wanted to talk about and then it worked so I like do it you know um but yeah that one um I just kind of stumbled into it I mean (laughs) literally and figuratively uh (laughs) Ah, the joke lives on in more jokes. It keeps going. It's a joke that keeps on giving. Yeah, I I think it just kind of happened. And I actually, I get pretty tired of that one because it is a dick joke. And I kind of don't want to have, honestly, it being about a dick is translating it for a straight audience because they, that's like a cue word for them to laugh at it. I would rather just be like, this is the hand that I fuck with, but it to them wouldn't read. Going back to setting up uh, backgrounds and backstory as part of the the labor of sometimes translating queer jokes, you created and wrote a web series called Just Call Me Ripley. And something that I really loved about it was that because it is a story, you have to tell backstory the way that characters have backstory. But anybody who's watching it is invited into that world and it's innate to the storytelling. How did or did the labor of backstory change when you came to writing the web series? Mm. Or did it? Am I making an assumption that's actually not the case? No, it definitely did because I I wrote that web series um, for a queer audience. So my goal was to write a web series that was for a queer audience first and a straight audience second. So it would be something that queer kids could watch and then invite their straight people in their life into later after they'd watched it. Um, And so then I think it was more of, um, I mean, it was personally just catharsis of writing out the main character in that has a similar coming out story to my own. So it was just a lot of catharsis in writing that one. You also uh, appeared in an interview talking about the differences between you and Ripley. There is a common experience there that inspired the character. What created the differences? That's a good question too. Honestly, a lot of it came from needing to have a a clean story to tell because I only had, you know, six to seven minute episodes. So I had to cut out like, I'm personally way crazier and kind of meaner than that character. So uh, in order to make it a more streamlined and um, tellable story, I had to cut out some of the uh, some of the more complicated parts. Tell me about coming to decide to write a web series. Uh, I I I want to write for TV, so uh, I uh, you know in Chicago, I'm like, what's the path for that? Um, it's just a get up and go kind of city. So I was like, I'm just going to write my own thing. And uh, I wanted to write something and I didn't really know which story I wanted to tell, but I took a um, pilot writing class and this is the story that stuck. When you started making your web series, how did you start and what were some of the discoveries that you made along the way about writing and producing and making? Uh, So I started 
with a pilot version of this story. Um, so that would have been like a, about a 25 minute show. And, um, I didn't want to shoot a pilot because I wanted it to be something that I could share. And that was immediately, um, immediately useful to people. Um, so I first wrote the script and I actually sat down with some mentor type folks who are in Chicago who are already made web series and they were like, give yourself a deadline. And they were like, just have it done by this date. So I was like, okay. So I wrote the script and then um, I started looking for directors and I ended up working with my friend Cassie Ayers, who I went to college with. And she was a director at Second City and she's super organized, which is something that I am not. (laughs) And so she really helped me put a timeline together. We got a crew together and this was about a year before we started shooting, I think, maybe six months. And so we put a crew together and then started doing fundraising for it. And then uh, we realized that wasn't enough money. So we started applying to grants, didn't get any, but I took an office job to help pay for it. And uh, eventually we got to shoot date and we shot for nine days and then edited for six months that day. Oh, hey, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I know you don't usually have bagel shop employees on the Ellen show, but I'm so grateful to be here representing the second Q in LGBTQQIA+. For those of your audience who don't know, the second Q stands for questioning, which for me means that I'm not sure if I'm attracted to like men or women or... Well, I don't know how I don't know who I'm attracted to. Jeez, Ellen, lay off. So this all started when I was engaged to a man. Will you marry me? Yes. Yes. And then I wasn't. I guess what I'm most afraid of is that I've been lying to everyone, including myself, my whole life. Like, I think that I thought that if you were gay, you just knew. Like, someone, like, handed you a gay card or something like that. But I don't just know. Well, I don't know how I don't know, Ellen. Jeez, I already said that. Lay off me. How do I know if I'm attracted to women? No, I mean out of the bathroom. Oh, I'm sorry. I gotta take a mad deep. Oh, yeah, sorry. It smells like ass in here. I sprayed it. Ass? Oh, I thought you said axe. Why'd you spray axe in here? Cause it smells like ass. Girl, you know what I'm So in the whole process, the actual filming, the stuff that we see takes nine days. Yeah. but. The lead up time, how long would you say it was from coming up with the idea to getting on set? It was probably, uh, I want to say at least eight months. Having never written a web series before and seen it come to fruition, what were the hardest things about that time? The slowness of it, because I'm used to things being on stage. So it'd be like, if you're putting something on stage, you could write it and have it up within a week. And it was so frustrating to me to not just be able to be like, let's all get together this weekend and just do it. So yeah, impatience. I imagine if I were to put myself in your shoes vaguely, that I would also perhaps start to worry about, I don't know, when you put something on stage... There is no like moment really for you to go, oh, hold on. Like, is this good? Like it's on stage, it's happening in the process of making this and actually bringing people on board. What kind of faith did you have to have in your own work? Honestly, I think that I have gotten really, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but I got trained by doing improv for so many years before it to just 
do the thing and, and not worry about the results. Uh, which I think is one of the most important things I gained from improv. It wasn't even that I was like, this is going to be good. It was like, this just has to get done. In terms of finding a mentor, what did you look for? And what was the process of approaching people like? Uh, I actually had people approach me from stand-up. So Julie Kack and Jess King are two filmmakers in the city. And I'd known them through like hosting benefit shows and stuff for uh, other film collectives. And they approached me and they were like, hey, if you ever need help with anything, let us know. We don't know how we can help, but just keep in touch. And so I was like, hey, guess what? Actually, uh, I want to do this thing. I also really love that they were uh, had boundaries with their own time because I think that sometimes when you want a mentor, you can expect them to take on everything for you. And they were like, this is what we can do for you. Beyond that, like, I'm not going to read your script. I'm not going to do this. You just have to do that yourself. But I'll help like make a deadline for you and stuff like that you're talking about finding mentors and accepting boundaries as a new process for you what did you find challenging about it I I think just personally I am always afraid that I'm going to cross people's boundaries so it's hard for me to actually ask for help because I don't want to invade people's space so learning how to ask for help in a respectful way was a really big step for me rather than just sitting back and being like I'll do it all myself But like actually having to bring people on was really scary. What is that magical apartment noise? That is our heat. Let me turn it off real fast. No, uh, you're welcome to. Do you want it? Um, Oh, like, you know. Yeah, it's it's pretty loud. I Hey, it's Rosie, and it's time for The Dose, a segment where a comedy writer talks up the things they're enjoying at the moment to thrive at this time in history. This episode's guest is comedian and comedy writer Alicia Brown. Alicia is a comedian based in Brooklyn, New York. She's been featured on Vulture and at the 208 Comedy Festival in Boys, Idaho. Alicia is also a musician. She does amazing TikToks and she's one of the creators of Tampon Rock, which is a scripted musical comedy podcast featuring characters and creators from the LGBTQ community. Alicia, hit us with your recs. Hello. Uh, this is Alicia Brown, and I'm coming in with some recommendations. My first highbrow rec would be the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I don't know if I'm saying that right at all, but this book, I think, showcases the effects of trauma and how it affects us. <laughs> yeah, I, I think as someone who is, you know, trying to learn more about herself and especially with what's going on in the world and how this trauma affects me, something that's been very important to understand and learn about myself and how I react to those things and people too. I don't know if that made sense. Okay. My lowbrow, I don't really know the difference. <laughs> what is lowbrow? What is highbrow? Um, my lowbrow recommendation is uh, the book Attached, which deals with attachment styles and how you are in any like relationship. So that is by Amira Levine and Rachel S. F. Heller, one of my favorite books. It really made me realize that I have an anxious attachment style, and uh, those people are usually attracted to people with avoidant attachment styles. And um, that sucks. <laughs> Basically, it looks like if you're avoidant, yeah, fuck you. You're never going to be cured. So uh, great recommendation there. Love it. 
my unibrow recommendation is my favorite show I've recently watched, Dialing Hollywood. It stars two gay black men, Jason Bolden and Adair Curtis. They're both married business partners of JSN Studios. And um, one is a stylist and the other is a designer like interior decorator, um, beautiful, great, love it, black boy magic, black boy joy, black girl magic, love it, love it. It's one of the best, I think, shows on Netflix. Okay, that is all, I think. That was comedian Alicia Brown, and the track you're listening to is by her because she's that talented, and it's called Tell Me, which is available now on Spotify as well as her brand new single release, Fuck With You or FWU. You can find a link to Alicia's music as well as links to information about all our guests and performers on today's show in the show notes of this episode. Also, if Alicia is wondering why there's a stack of hits from Australia on this particular track, it's because I have been listening to it on repeat because I think it should be on the L Word Next Gen soundtrack, like at least. I hope that you're getting a million dollars from me listening to it again and again. It's just the best. And I don't know why. I just love it. It's just very sexy or something. I don't know. I didn't say that in a sexy way. I can't really say things in sexy ways. Okay. Well, anyway, back to Jake's living room where we're having a very hot, cool, sexy conversation about web series making. What were your priorities coming into making the web series that were informed by your own experiences watching and getting stuff from queer web series? Yeah, I think actually, so I came out, I went, I kind of came through the process of coming out, I would say in 2011-ish. And so at that time, I actually couldn't find queer content at all. Like I couldn't find what I was looking for, which was something that explained the intricacies of it and was made for a queer audience versus here's queer trauma for straight people to enjoy, you know? So uh, I think it was just making that at all um, and just adding to the growing pantheon of uh, uh, queer stories that are there for a queer audience. Um, Yeah, I think I had like chat rooms not like kind of the next step from chat rooms is what I was dealing with, uh, which was helpful, but not entirely satisfying. Well, I I guess it's different from actually seeing the story play out and having fun watching it rather than that, like (laughs) scary lostness of chat rooms. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh my God. Like, I don't know who I'm talking to. And like, yeah. And like, I mean, having, if you think about coming out is almost like a second puberty. And so, when you're a teenager, you want to see movie stars that you can look up to, or you want to read books about things that you can look up to. And so I think it's just, you know, humans function on stories. So giving people a story that they can latch on to and see themselves in. There are moments in your web series where characters come into play who are caricatures, but they actually kind of facilitate you or Ripley, the character, having a really seminally queer experience. Uh, the the one that I can think of is um, the pirate <laughs> character. <laughs> I will say no more. Yeah. But this kind of – I've spoken to so many queer folks who are in the process of coming out are told by somebody that they just need to have sex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a – yeah. And when you're writing this series, what were the kind of – experiential boxes that you wanted to tick 
through the story arc. Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely one of them. Like, I think one of the major things is just seeing this character navigate that advice that you're given, majority of it by straight folks, which is like now like looking back on it from this point, I'm like, what would the, why did I think that they knew anything, you know? And also that mixed with the internal struggle. So like what the outside is telling you versus what it's actually like or what it can be like on the inside. If somebody were to say, want to make a web series from their small hometown or a remote or regional area, what advice would you give them? Well, I've actually learned a ton in making this. So, um, what I found is once it's done, I, uh, realize I don't know anything. So I thought I knew more going into it than I think I know now. Um, it depends on what you want from it. If you just want to put it online, then I think that you don't need as high a production budget as we thought we had to have. So you could just shoot it on your phone, um, get a couple friends together, use, if you can afford a camera, you can use that. If you want to play around with photography, if you know people who want to just get groups together. If you want to sell it, um, you don't have to make the whole series. You can just make an episode or a sizzle reel. So that's one thing that like I know now for future projects. Uh, but yeah, it depends on where you want to go with it. But just do it. Do you experience much tiredness or exhaustion? Yes. In terms of this project in particular or just doing work? In I mean, general? even now. Yeah. Even after the project. Yeah, I um so I I just got let go from my day job, which is not entirely bad. It was because I am understudying at Second City and they didn't like that. So, um I was running, you know, 24/7 doing a 40-hour a week day job in addition to performing almost every night. And um yeah, this past like week that I just haven't had work, I've just been sleeping nonstop. I didn't even realize how exhausted I was. Um, so I think that's something that I haven't mastered by any means, but, um, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm never figuring out the balance there. Are you able to talk about why the workplace didn't like you? Oh God, yes. I, this job, oh I'm my gonna, God, please I go can to drag town. this job. I do <laughs> not care. Great. Go. <laughs> drag them. Um, I was working at a coupon company, which first of all, wow. Um, it is, I've. Uh, for some reason, comedians' day jobs in Chicago revolve around online coupons a lot of the time. I have genuinely noticed this. <laughs> it is so bizarre. It's such a bizarre field. And I think it's because tech, there's no unions. And so they're able to kind of uh, abuse employees. And comedians are ripe for abuse because we're like jump from job to job a whole bunch. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I was working at a place adding coupons to a website and I was there for two years and was trying to use PTO responsibly, which there's a ton that I'm grateful for this job for. I was able to get top surgery because of insurance. I was able to get glasses, like stuff that just, you know, everyday stuff too. Um, but uh, I asked for time off to do uh, understudying because I was like, I can't possibly do two shows in a night, come home at three in the morning, get up for an 8.30 job. And they were like, no, you are you have to come in. I was like, oh, that's not physically possible. Like, I can't do that. And they were like, well, then you're fired. And uh, I was like, okay, I guess this is it. And they literally looked me in the eyes and said, we need somebody who's more committed to coupons. <laughs> and I 
goes like, this is, this is it. This is my last moment here. I cannot go on. I mean, I feel like I've had this moment. I mean, I've been doing comedy for 13 years now, and I feel like I've had this moment at least five times. And so I think what's not shown is that um, you do have to make money, and I think that there's a lot of shame around having a day job sometimes. But, like, the reality is, first of all, being non-binary and looking very queer – I can't get commercial work the same way a straight white guy can. So a lot of performers survive off commercial work. I'm not going to get that. Um, People can have families take care of them. If you don't have that, you have to have a day job. Um, If you have any sort of ailment, you have to have insurance. So a lot of people have to have day jobs for that. So uh, I think it would do well to break down this narrative that you have to be like a starving, struggling artist. Libby Schreiner actually said a similar thing um, when I interviewed her, she was talking about how she was actually pretty practical about making sure that she had a job that she could do that was outside of comedy and that she was qualified in so that essentially she had a fallback, which is interesting because I grew up in a family where my mom was always like, make sure that you have something else. And I was always like, that's a shame narrative. (laughs) No. (laughs) And as I've grown up, I've come to realize that for my own creative work, I also want another job because to do creative stuff all the time, like there's a pressure to it as well. It's wonderful and fun and amazing, but I'm also very bad with like managing downtime. So like my downtime is a job. That's not creative. I love that way of looking at it is that your downtime is a job because it's like, (laughs) I'm going to use that because like I'm also horrible with managing time. I think the most useful thing to me would be to work a part-time job three days a week, no matter where I'm at in my career, because also you need to pull from something. It's hard to stay relatable if all you're doing is creative work. So what would you like to do next if you could choose? Oh my God. In terms of just like life? (laughs) Yeah. Um, You're kind of at this point right now. It's a really exciting crossroads to meet you at. I'm so glad that we've (laughs) come and interviewed you at this point in time, actually. Honestly, I am at this very, like in the past week since losing this job, I've been really pulled between being like, oh my God, do I need to rest a little bit? Um, I mean, I would love to tour doing stand-up and reinvest in stand-up and just write a whole bunch. Stand-up writing is really, really different to web series writing. Did you see any crossover in the two writing forms or do you really see them as quite different and the only thing that you need to have is like a sense of humor? I think stand-up for me is like an ongoing process. So I'll have an idea and then it has to get fleshed out over like months to years for it to, to become a joke that I'm like, this is a finished joke. I think where it comes into play with writing a script is that it's really useful for punch-ups so I can see the opportunity for jokes where maybe I couldn't before I started doing stand-up. Do you see the opportunity for jokes now in like day-to-day casual passing life? (laughs) Uh, I'd like to think that I don't, that I'm like a chill person who doesn't like, isn't on all the time. It definitely pops up. I am constantly quietly stealing away to my phone to take notes on things. I'm also guilty of doing that. It's important. It is. Otherwise, you won't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. What are you working on at the moment? I am working on the the main thing I'm working on right now is a podcast called Murder Town, which is a parody of true crime podcasts. And uh, we've similarly interviewed or used a lot of the Chicago comedy community as characters in it. And season one is out right now. 
uh, which is about a small town murder in a fictional Wisconsin town. And season two will be coming out this year, and that's all about cults. Cults are awesome and fascinating. Yes. Australia's had their fair share of fascinating cults. We do what we can. We're a creepy, (laughs) isolated island. You're pretty good at it. Yeah. So it sounds like you did research for this show. Uh, Not for the show, for myself. (laughs) The show (laughs) came out of interest that I already had. So how involved were you in creating the show? Uh, It's me and my friend Gary Pascal, who plays Craig in um, Just Call Me Ripley. And uh, we worked together on Koch Brothers Mystery Show. And after that ended, we still wanted to keep writing together. So we came up with this idea. What are the main differences between writing a plot of any kind for audio and writing something for a web series? Uh, for audio, there's in a lot of ways less constraints because we can say we want this to take place in a whole town and we want to go to all these different locations and we don't have to pay for them. That's so true. And I guess you can make the sound of those places. Totally. Like you, instead of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, or millions of dollars to rent out a small town, you can just have a sound of a a dust. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever a town sounds like. We actually are lucky enough to have someone named Chris Yearwood who did all of the sound for Koch Brothers, and he does all our sound for Murder Town as well. Uh, so he does all the foley and everything like that, so I don't even have to learn about it. Because you have a guitar here. I mean, not that that's, you know, probably a foley artist would look around and be like, oh, yeah, the, the bike wheel, that's actually the best foley. Oh, yeah, I know, right? Like, foley is, like, such a fascinating whole other thing. It's like another world. yeah. Man, somebody should make a Foley podcast. Oh, that'd be so cool. All right. Well, there's my next gig. What do you want to do next in terms of comedy? You said stand-up before. Is there a goal that you have or something that you are working towards in relation to that? Um, I am I'm kind of reassessing everything right now. So I feel like I'm in a phase where I'm like... Um, where do I want to put my efforts because I have been scattershotting, you know, right now. And I ultimately want to make this a long career. So I think I'm looking a lot towards longevity and like making a move possibly to LA or, um, like getting together a career that I could, I could make it in like screenwriting or something like that. So that, uh, there's a little bit, not that that's stable, but a little bit more stability than teaching and doing stage shows. What do you need to do the next things? That's interesting. It's such a, uh, I think everybody has such a different path that I've talked to, but definitely like, um, uh, just getting in a, getting in a writer's room would be great. I think (laughs) I would, I think that that's where I'm headed. What is it about getting into a writer's room that makes you know that that's what you need? Uh, I think I don't. I think I'm I'm still playing. And sometimes I'll head in a direction. I'll be like, this is my end goal, but I'm just going to head that way. And if I get something different on the way there, then that's awesome. Because I still love performing. Um, I want a paycheck, honestly. I can't work at coupons anymore. <laughs> literally, you got fired. I literally so. am not allowed to work with Sorry. coupons anymore. I'm not committed enough. 
That was an interview with stand-up comedian and comedy writer Jake Knoll. And while that was the end of our conversation in Jake's apartment, because it's been a year since we talked about Jake's career and comedy, I called them up last week and checked in to see what they're up to one year on. When we met in your apartment, you'd recently been advised that you weren't passionate enough about coupons. Uh, How is work going for you and what has it meant for your comedy? Uh... So I, I maintain that I am still not passionate enough about coupons. Uh, I have not returned to the coupon place. I recognized through that job that I had the power to push through a situation just to get the thing that I wanted out of it, which was top surgery. And I got that. And uh, I kind of, I think, have like learned to ease into and trust like that things will run the course that they're supposed to because I got fired from that job. But that's essentially what I had planned on the whole time. It just was a painful process. <laughs> um, so now I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, and now I've just been like surprised at the ability I've had to make the same amount of money without doing that kind of work, essentially, and uh, taking a little bit of a leap of faith and being able to make money in places that I actually get fulfillment from. Before the pandemic, I worked at a place called Nevermore Park that was this amazing interactive kind of art gallery, kind of uh, just like space that was based in Afrofuturism by this artist, Hebrew Brantley. And it was amazing. Like kids would come through and they got to interact with like a a workbench where they could play with and build their own sort of little things and then um, walk inside of uh, this character, Little Mama out of her head and dance like it was a club in there like it was just it was such a fascinating place and um I think I've just learned to take more leaps of faith and see what see where it lands me how is Ripley Ripley is doing well um she was just over here a second ago but she is uh she's does not a care in the world how are you I'm doing pretty well I actually I saw a shaman today uh So I've been trying to get out of the third dimension, you know, (laughs) whatever we're doing right now. How did you go about finding a shaman? This is somebody who I had been made aware of a long time ago when I was working with like a body movement teacher in college. And uh, since I'm leaving Chicago soon, I just decided it was time to hit him up, see what shamans are all about. And what was your experience like? It's been great. I've seen him three times and it's, uh, I feel like he has a lot of wisdom that we kind of have lost in this culture in terms of like alternate forms of healing. And uh, I don't know, I feel great right now. That's freaking awesome. Uh, speaking of shamans and moving and, and what's going on in your life at the moment, what are you working on or making or thinking about at the moment? My big project right now is actually sort of a bigger picture one of time management for myself or, or my relationship to time. And I think what the pandemic has done for me is, um, what the pandemic has done for me um, is that, you know, what is it done for you? But it has um, given me a chance to not be busy. And I've always sort of staked my worth on being busy, I think. And so uh, this is the first time that I've been forced to not have a show every night. 
in fact, no shows whatsoever for the most part. And uh, I can't plan like a live performance. So I've just been focusing on doing things that take a long time. So writing scripts and playing with other art forms like drawing and essay writing and stuff like that. Have you kept to a comedic bent or are you finding yourself expanding in how you express and think about yourself and the world? As much as I would like to be able to do a dramatic piece, everything I do ends up being funny. <laughs> like I, I would love to be able to write an episode of Battlestar Galactica, but I have a feeling it would turn out funny. Then I think it needs to be written. Yeah, yeah. Big <laughs> Battlestar. I feel like the number one thing that's missing from Battlestar Galactica is like the comedy episode, you know? Totally, totally. Where they um, topsy-turvy crash a ship. Like, yeah. And also it has like heaps of foley, like just really (laughs) silly, like fart noises and like whistle noises all the time. Totally. The Cylons just all fart when they walk. (laughs) Mork and Mindy ended up on Battlestar Galactica. Something I haven't actually asked any of the guests in catching up yet is how or whether reconsidering whiteness is something that's come into play in how you think about comedy, your comedy, the comedy scene, and also thinking about blackness. Have you noticed or have you made any changes yourself in how you think about or notice race in comedy? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, and truly, like, yeah, I guess that would be the big like thing that's changing right now. You know, I've reflected a lot on how I got where I am, because I definitely came up through a white supremacist like system, you know, Um, comedy scene in Chicago is very based around whiteness. Um, And it's been really interesting, sort of seeing my place as a white and also trans person in the scene, because Um, I'm having to dissect where I've had a lot of difficulties because of who I am, but also how much privilege I've had and allowing them both to have weight and not trying to diminish one or the other. It's a really, it's a really fascinating process. And then also I've had so much gratitude for sort of the company that I've fallen into over the past few years. I think upon coming out, there's, I don't know if you've experienced these, but like diversity showcases. um, Yeah kind of lump every kind of possible diversity together. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes to the extent that it also includes cis straight women as diversity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Cis straight white women, I should say, as diversity. But uh, because I started being included in those showcases and also just being the odd man out in comedy, I've been really lucky to make friends with a lot of black comedians and uh, comedians of color, queer comedians. And just have found a lot of gratitude in the work that they've done that they've like let me in to watch and then also uh finding ways to open myself further to finding ways to let more people into the comedy world lastly jake what are your priorities in comedy currently and what are your priorities in life and in your community i think my priorities in comedy right now are to sort of learn how to be authentic again. I think I spent a long time trying to be correct or trying to be, um, say the correct thing about being trans, say the correct thing for the moment. And now I am taking a moment just to go back to doing what I think is genuinely funny, you know, 
interesting that I've integrated the heavier work into it, you know, and that's a fun process and it feels hard, but it's actually super fun. And then I feel like that fits into community as well. Like I've been able to connect with more on a deeper level with more trans comedians during the shutdown than I have before, just because we're all off of shows. And so, I don't know, I feel like uh, I'm like learning that I can just surround myself with the people that I want to right now. Just a huge hearty thanks to Jake for catching up with me on the eve of the 2020 US election when I think we were both feeling trepidatious. Jake also mentioned to me that they have got a writing manager and they're organizing to move to LA at the moment. So big changes have come over the year and they're all so very deserved. And here's this episode's reading of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna website. This is your college's mental health counseling office. And from the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays, we care about you. Written by Elsa Nirenberg, read by Allison Reese. Hello, new students, and welcome. Here at your college's mental health counseling office, we are committed to supporting you through this new, tumultuous journey through higher education. We know that everything from making friends to caring for your mental well-being while managing a stressful class schedule can seem overwhelming. And that's why from the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays, we're here to help. Busy schedule? Us too. Thanks to college-wide funding cuts, we currently only have two licensed therapists on campus. But we've still got you covered. Who else works in our office? Student volunteers. And before you ask, yes, they are freshmen. Now that you're ready to come on over to the counseling office, let's talk about making an appointment. During the academic year, exclusively during standard weekday work hours, we're available for counseling sessions. These sessions are 20-minute appointments that, you'll note on your calendar, directly conflict with your academic class schedule. Looking for a weekend appointment? Check out our online counseling portal, which, once the site stops crashing, redirects you to a CVS Minute Clinic. Would you prefer to call and make your appointment? Simply dial the number on your student orientation packet which you'll find crumpled in a ball behind your wastebasket. And after a short hour or two on hold, we'll be happy to help. Due to the aforementioned budget cuts, we no longer have an admin on staff. But we do have a college mascot, Bev the Beaver, available to assist you in making any number of sensitive mental health-related appointments. Our staff of highly qualified grad students are here on weekdays from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. to support your mind and general well-being. Using innovative therapeutic techniques like a brief questionnaire asking, are you sad, yes or no, or a poster of a kitten hanging from a tree branch captioned, hang in there. We're more than prepared to give you individualized counseling and advice. Whether you're mildly anxious or having a full-on depressive episode, we've got you covered with tips like breathe, drink water, and just don't stress. We promise to offer educated, judgment-free counseling on mental illness topics including depression, which we like to refer as Sunday scaries, anxieties, the jumpies, obsessive-compulsive disorder, more commonly known here as the organization bug, ADHD, the lots of thoughts, and more. 
Looking for a career in counseling, a mono test, or an Adderall prescription? That sounds like another department's problem. The exit is over there next to our basket of pamphlets on holistic health and wellness. Still not cured? Why not grab a handful of free condoms from the bucket placed strategically next to our poster on the laws of consent? Remember, you can say, fuck the mental health counseling office, just as long as you get enthusiastic verbal consent first. If you have questions, concerns, or a prescription that needs to be processed, leave a note in our Issues Tissues complaint box and we'll be sure to get back to you just as soon as we arbitrarily decide to. Looking forward to working with you, your college's mental health counseling office. Regular appointments are available in the counseling office starting in April 2021, once our wait list reopens. Alison Reese is an improviser, actor and sketch comedy legend based in New York City. Alison toured with the Second City as an ensemble member of Blueco and this year she wrote a full-length ensemble sketch review for Hyde Park's Rival Theatre. Alison was a member of IO Theatre's World News and Studio 11 and during quarantine Alison created, wrote and produced the web series In Diana with her Chicago-based comedy group Matt Damon Improv. Elsa Nuremberg is a stand-up comedian and humour writer originally from Boston, Massachusetts. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Elsa Nuremberg. Next episode, we're visiting an apartment in Brooklyn, New York City to record really poor audio of a houseplant, I Just Love a Cell, and have a conversation with writing alumna from Clickhole and the Patriot Act, Sophia Manfredi. You know, your interactions with people and your relationships with people matter. Uh, not yes, not in like a nepotistic way or, or the version of that that people are rightfully skeptical of. Um, but the version of it where you're not an asshole and you are agreeable to work with other people is super important. Yeah, I think I think not being an asshole goes a, a long way. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural or find The Belladonna on Facebook or why not all of these things. Until next time.